Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the regions stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Natalie Soer, a Paris-based climate journalist. I'm Angelina Davidova, originally from Russia, also a climate journalist, now based in Berlin. We will be dedicating our episode today to the impact of the war in Ukraine on Russia's climate policy, both at a diplomatic and domestic level. How has the mood evolved since Russia ratified the Paris Agreement in 2019? Has the war killed all hope for climate action in the country? And how is Russia's fossil fuel industry planning to adapt to the European Union's partial ban on Russian crude oil and petroleum products? Our co-host Boris Schneider will be discussing all of this and more with Maria Pastuchova, an analyst with the climate change think tank E3G. But before we embark onto the interview, we have a bit of housekeeping to do. First up, we are very excited to announce to you the launch of our media partnership with the Moscow Times from today, Monday the 1st of August onwards. That's right. And from today onwards, you'll be able to find any Russia-linked episodes of the Eurasian Climate Brief on the Moscow Times podcast section. And we will also be launching our Patreon account. So if you value our coverage of the climate crisis in Eurasia, we would be incredibly grateful if you could chip in a few dollars or euros or whatever currency you're on, on the link that you will find on social media and in the podcast notes. And if you speak German or Russian or don't mind using online translation tools, we can only vividly recommend to you the dossier on the environmental impacts of the war published by climatreporter.de. Angelina, you oversaw this. This consists of 12 articles written by 11 climate journalists and experts. Could you go over what you write about? So we have 11 authors and we have 12 articles. These articles will be published gradually on the website of a German environmental media, which is called Klima Reporter, so Climate Reporter. And um, the topics um, have very broad focus, uh, but all more or less speak about environmental and climate policy issues. Um, say one article overviews Russian climate policy before the war and is trying to track what's happening now and whether climate agenda is still relevant for Russia. Russia does remain a party to the Paris Agreement in official talks, uh, Russian presidential climate envoy, Ruslan Adil-Giriev and many other officials still confirm their commitment to the Paris Agreement goals and Russian decarbonization documents. However, we've been seeing some worrying trends, including more relaxed regulation for large polluters and more pressure from the oil companies to make the climate regulation uh, even more flexible, even though it was not super ambitious in, in case of Russia. And there'll be a specific article on attempts to roll back nature conservation policy in Russia. Right. That's also one of the articles. So another article is also tackles predominantly environmental regulation and also the rights to build in nature protected zones, for example, or rights for NGOs to make civil environmental expertise. I mean, all of this have been rolled back, or at least there were attempts to roll this regulation back. And civil society activists are actually still, still trying to fight with it. And um, other topics which are also in the dossier is, um, for example, what's happening with the Russian renewable energy sector. 
As we know, quite a number of international investors have left Russia, including the ones which have been investing in bringing technology to Russia's uh, renewable wind and solar energy sector. Yet another article is looking at the future of hydrogen sector in Russia. Uh, here, once again, before the beginning of the war, hydrogen was quite a hype topic in Russia, I would say. And there were plans, there were also like federal and national plans to develop hydrogen production in Russia and production and exports. And also quite a number of companies from Gazprom to Rosatom and Novatech were trying to work out their own hydrogen strategies and plans to produce blue hydrogen. So the one which you produce from uh, natural gas with um, carbon capture and storage of greenhouse gases and uh, the so-called pink or yellow hydrogen, which is produced uh, with um, with the help of the nuclear energy. So our author, one of our authors, uh, Yuri Melnikov, who's a, who's a great expert in the area in Russia, was trying to look at whether the plants will ever come to life and what is the future of uh, hydrogen production and experts in Russia. And then quite a few articles are also dealing with the topic of attitudes to climate change and whether attitudes to climate change have changed in Russia under the conditions of the Ukrainian war. Like what does the general public think? What do businesses think? Uh, are they still interested at all in decreasing their emissions? Then another article is speaking about changes in Russia's forest policy and what has been happening with regard to sustainable forestry and also forest certification, for example. Just as a reminder, Russia has the largest forest in the world. The Boral Forest are, are the largest in the world. So what Russia does with its forest matters for all of us. Exactly, right. Yeah. And then another article by Anastasia Trajanova, a journalist from Moscow, is looking at uh, greenhouse gas mitigation projects in Russia and also their international prospects under the current political conditions at the times of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then finally, we also have an article uh, which is trying to look at the role that oil and gas sector um, has played in priorities of Russian foreign policy and is also trying to take a brief outlook into the future in what respect uh, the fossil fuel sectors will remain to be important for Russia's economy and for Russia's foreign policy in particular. This is incredibly comprehensive. I'm very excited to delve into it in the next weeks. Thanks, Angelina. Now let's turn to the specific impacts of the war over domestic climate policy and diplomacy. Over to Boris and Maria Pastuchova. Uh, Maria, thank you for taking the time and being with us on this interview. Almost three years ago, Russia ratified the Paris Agreement. Um, how would you say the mood of people tracking climate policy in Russia is today by comparison to back then? Morning, Boris. It's great to be here. Um, and to a question, I think we need to address it in two parts. Uh, first, how the mood or how the perception of climate change uh, has changed between the moment Russia ratified the Paris Agreement and uh, the time before the invasion of Ukraine and what change has happened after the war has started. To the first part, I think uh, we need to acknowledge that Russia started to see the risks and severity of the challenges posed by the climate change 
And we have seen, in fact, how the perception of the climate change has evolved over the last two decades uh, within the Russian elites. Uh, I'm sure you know this anecdotal evidence of uh, President Putin being used to joke about the temperature increase of two or three degrees at as being not so bad for a northern country like Russia because the population could spread less, uh, fur, uh, less for fur coats and have better grain harvest. And this kind of very cynical not taking seriously attitude has shifted dramatically in the wake of the years. And the sense of the government before COP26 indeed showed a belated yet very dramatic change that acknowledged the um, economic shocks caused by the climate change and the risks of a mismanaged transition that can be detrimental to Russia's economic development and its broader economic goals. Um, and we did have this decarbonization strategy, uh, which has been adopted last year ahead of COP26, uh, that also acknowledged um, in the text the impacts of human-made climate crisis and uh, laid out a development scenario that should help Russia to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2060. So we had all the, these developments ahead of COP26 on the kind of uh, international climate diplomacy stage. But aside from that, we also have seen several other developments uh, within Russia that confirm that both the Russian policymakers and the private sector are starting to take climate change seriously. Well, to be completely fair, the shift was probably driven not only by the climate change impacts themselves or the perceived transition risk, um, but also by the policies uh, planned or introduced by Russia's main partners. By then, the European Union, uh, and among those, uh, the carbon border adjustment was arguably the instrument that has been the most uh, influential for Russian uh, climate and energy policies. Could you very briefly explain um, what the carbon border adjustment mechanism is? Well, uh, this is this is a legislation which is now, uh, for now, not be, not being adopted on the European level. But the main principle, uh, if you put it very in very simple terms, is that in order to avoid European companies that are now under the emissions trading system within Europe, that is, uh, they have to uh, to be accountable, to be held accountable for their emissions within Europe, or they have to trade them so that they don't outsource these emissions to other economies that don't have such regulations. Uh, this carbon border adjustment mechanism has been introduced, meaning all emissions-intensive products that are imported into the European Union would be taxed based on their carbon emissions intensity. Of course, uh, the mechanism didn't, or the current version of the mechanism doesn't cover all products or even all carbon-intensive products, but there are some some very um, significant uh, groups of products that uh, Russia has been exporting to Europe, steel among them, for example. So that there was that there were several developments within Russia and and uh, Russia with Russia internationally that have happened um, since Russia has ratified the Paris Agreement um, and COP twenty six was maybe this kind of a peak of Russian climate diplomacy activity. So we did see this change also in the perception of climate crisis being real. Uh, this has been ridiculed for many years by Russian elites, and, and this was not the case anymore. Uh, of course, we cannot never say whether this is uh, a change of mind and a real perception of climate crisis or whether this is politics and uh, an intention to to not lose to the you know economic and technical competition which runs uh, in, in industrialized countries, be it Europe, US, or uh, industrialized North, Northeastern Asia. But uh, whatever works, uh, anyway, the Russia was moving along the global climate agenda. What has happened after the invasion of Russia into Ukraine is still very hard to say, because for now we only have had very high-level 
confirmation by the Russian politicians that it will um, remain in the Paris Agreement. I think it is fair to expect that Russian representatives, most probably the climate envoy, uh, Ruslan and Edelgarif, will um, visit the COP27, but we still don't know whether something else changes in, in Russia's climate diplomacy. Right. This um, reminds me of a quote I, I read of the chairman of the Duma's Committee on Ecology, Natural Resources and Environmental, Prote Environmental Protection, which is Lai Fitsisov, who said exactly what you um, just repeated, that Russia is not planning to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement or abandon the implementation of its most important environmental international legal instruments. But um, nonetheless, that brings me to the next question. Um, even though it's still, uh, it's like a very fresh and, and obviously ongoing and changing situation. But if you had to sum it up, how would you say has the war concretely impacted, on the one hand, um, Russia's climate policy, both at national level and at a diplomatic one? Well, on the national level, I think what we see now is uh, a lot of the initiatives that um, have been driving Russia's climate agenda have been either suspended or put on hold. Um, the Sakhalin uh, ETS pilot, trading pilot, uh, that kind of planned to, to, to repeat the European experience on the smaller scale in Russia uh, with an intention to further expand it to other regions um, that was planned for launch this year is now, um, I believe, uh, suspended uh, till 2023. Just as an explainer, ETS is an emissions trading system. Exactly. Um, the one that the European Union has and the one would, that is the reason for EU introducing carbon border adjustment mechanism. So that some things have been suspended, some things have more or less lost value. I mean, the Russian transition and green taxonomy that has also been published last year by um, by the VTB, I believe, November F, the bank, that was supposed to drive investments into the Russian sustainable market and also allow the Russian companies to enter the international uh, financial investment uh, space more easily, um, now has basically no, no value because uh, Russia is isolated in every possible financial terms from the uh, global markets um, and from global sustainable investments. Uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism that has been driving uh, the industrial decarbonization in Russia since it has been announced by the European Union has also near to zero leverage um, over over developments in Russia because the steel exports have been suspended to European Union. So basically exports of energy intensive products, um, I, I think steel and iron only uh, a few among them, but also other critical resources uh, and other commodities, they have been suspended. Russia is now rerouting some of it to the Asian market, some of it to Turkey. But these are all areas that don't have carbon board adjustment mechanisms. So it is not clear why the industry should pursue the decarbonization agenda if, if the environment is to stay as it is now, at least not clear for, for many uh, in the private sector in Russia. So uh, this is maybe on, on the broader context, but then we also have seen some incremental steps by Russian uh, authorities that are now backtracking on some of the environmental regulations um, in the wake of the war. Most of it has been justified as the means to, to, to support the, the local industry, for example, some regulations that's been lifted or some sustainability criteria that uh, are not applicable uh, to, to the oil business anymore, some, some environmental regulations that have been lifted on, on emissions quota. So all these less noticeable changes, and um, I can see, say that uh, not much about this has been reported in the English-speaking news, it's most, mostly in Russian, so... 
it's it's not been noticed internationally, I think, but there are some steps that are a bit worrying. But we also don't know, uh, you know, if if this is something temporary and how how things will develop as either the war situation uh, escalates or hopefully winds down at some point. So earlier in June this year, the EU imposed a partial ban on Russian crude oil, petroleum products, as well as a ban on shipping insurance for oil exports from Russia. And my question would be, do you believe that this move um, can help or hinder Russia's energy transition? Will it have a main, uh, will it have a big role on Russia's energy transition? Well, before talking about Russia's energy transition, I think it, uh, we need to acknowledge that this will definitely have a an impact and a serious one on the Russian uh, economy and the state budget, given that uh, Europe was um, still the largest uh, export market for oil and, uh, and petroleum products from Russia up until now. I mean, the embargo is not entering in force until December for oil and until March for petroleum products. So we still have to wait and see what happens then. But Russia is is already winding down its uh, um, its oil production at home, and uh, uh, what we, for example, have seen uh, already is that uh, given that uh, not not all mazut, not all petroleum products can be exported, the Russian oil industry is now pitching an idea to the government to use uh, these products um, for coal or gas to oil switching on the power generation plants, which is, of course, detrimental for for the overall emissions profile and, and for, for, for the environment um, within Russia. Um, now, um, oil accounting for, by different calculations, uh, a quarter to about 80% of the Russian budget, and by different calculations, I mean, um, it, it, we can count just the export tax and the oil uh, exploration and production tax up We also can count the all the income taxes that come from the companies, the insurance payments that come from the companies' workers. Basically, the larger picture tells us that that the role of oil companies in Russia or uh, the oil company Rosneft, Molaik, and Tatneft is is very very significant. Um, and we cannot put the concrete number on the table right now. But um, if if larger part of oil exports will be forced uh, to stop. Uh, due to the European embargo, um, then we will see very significant cuts in, in the Russian budget. And uh, this has, of course, very direct implications for, for, for the Russia's fiscal ability to accelerate the transition because some things uh, still need governmental support and particularly in, a, in, a, in an economy, in a stressed economy. And when Russian budget will be under such stress, then, then I would say energy transition uh, and decarbonization will be one of the lesser priorities. Um, most will be going into sus into sustaining the state apparatus, into maybe supporting the regions, uh, into supporting people who are um, working in the public sector, and of course uh, for for sustaining the war effort. So um, the energy transition uh, will be degraded as as a priority. And this uh, linked together with the lack of, in, in, of foreign investments and the uh, complete exodus of large energy companies out of Russia means that Russia has neither domestic nor international means to, to accelerate the transition um, within the country. Right. I think this is, especially the last sentence is a very important point. The, the lack of technology that, that, that Russia will be facing or is already now facing uh, due to the sanctions 
which I think is something that um, you don't see immediately, but you see it over the mid to long term. And um, this is also one of the reasons why some people, I would say, underestimate the effect of sanctions. So with uh, the COP27 on the horizon in November this year, um, I would like to ask you, what is your opinion on how the international community should keep its pressure on Russia to decarbonize? while at the same time trying to hamper the country's war effort in Ukraine. So, or to put it in different words, is it possible to keep any kind of diplomatic di dialogue on climate with Russia in such a geopolitical context? This is a very tricky question, um, and probably I don't have a straightforward answer to that. But um, maybe to start with, the question is, of course, what are the sanctions and, and the regime we have now is really hampering Russia's, um, Russia's will or Kremlin's will more like uh, to continue the war in Ukraine. And I think by now it is also fair to say that uh, the sanctions and the embargo on oil, for example, um, that has been introduced, uh, though not in effect yet, has not affected Putin's will to continue the war efforts uh, in, in Ukraine. And judging by by how, for example, one of Russia's biggest companies, Gazprom, is now being used as a political pawn with the whole story around Nord Stream 1 and gas cats, we see that there is zero commercial or business logic behind what is happening now with uh, within the Russian uh, larger, like the Russian oil and gas business. And all efforts are now directed into into the security sphere, into the military sphere, and, and into the efforts into sustaining the aggression within the Ukraine. So it, it is the question at all whether, uh, whether you know, phasing in or phasing out sanctions will affect anything in terms of Russia's aggression in the Ukraine. The question whether it is worth it to uh, maintain the dialogue on climate in this environment, I would say, yeah, yes, it is definitely worth it because we still cannot forget the fact that Russia is the fourth largest um, emitter worldwide of, of CO2. Russia is the second largest emitter of methane. And without Russia moving on, on decarbonization, uh, without Russia accelerating the mitigation efforts, there is no way in the world we will be able to, to put the world on the um, 1.5 uh, degrees pathway that is containing the global warming within the 1.5 degrees. So A dialogue is is necessary, uh, of course, with a caveat that probably not much will be able to happen in the next months, at least, uh, or while the war is still ongoing. What I think is is now really critical is to enable the exchange, the scientific exchange, uh, with the Russian environmental um, experts on the ground. For example, those assessing methane emissions, those assessing uh, the destruction of permafrost in in climate sensitive regions such as Arctic, for example. Uh, right now, we have um, a, a almost complete stop of cooperation between the Russian scientists um, and the international community which is now already a problem, for example, for the Arctic Council, which is now being suspended because Russia uh, presides over it this year. And this leads to first lack of data on, on Russian emissions, lack of data on climate impact uh, in, in Russia's uh, climate-sensitive regions, and therefore also lack of, of any foundation to develop uh, policy roadmaps to model uh, future developments so this is a this is I think the the biggest problem right now and and the lowest hanging fruit this is a, a rather low political hurdle right to to establish or reestablish the scientific exchange uh, the rest is is just too sensitive and of course the the global priority is is to stop this war and um, I, I'm afraid uh, it is fair to say that the climate agenda has 
um, has slipped down somewhat uh, from uh, from from the in terms of urgency from at least within the understanding of some of some countries. Um, so in relations with Russia, the first priority will always be uh, stopping the invasion in Ukraine, making sure the uh, the uh, restoration of Ukrainian economy and society is possible and is facilitated by Russia. And then we can talk climate and energy transition. On this uh, serious but I think very important note, um, I would like to say thank you. Thank you for taking your time and thank you for this interview. Thanks a lot, Boris. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. Our podcast is supported by Enost, a Berlin-based NGO backing cross-border journalism, the Moscow Times and the European Climate Foundation. A big thank you to our three partners for making our work possible. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter, where you'll find us at Eurasian Climate. And we'll be back on Monday, the 5th of September with a new episode. So see you then. Mm-hmm.